Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope that all of you have had a good start to your week. I know I have. And um, I'm glad to be back on the air tonight um, as we uh, discuss um, Michael Schumacher's book, Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Tonight's podcast, we are going to uh, be learning various uh, things about Lake Superior uh, in terms of some geology history, um, general 101 history, um, to general um, information about the lake itself. So be prepared and uh, let's get ready um, to get the show going. Well, for starters, I think all of us should know that Lake Superior is the largest of all the Great Lakes. It is the world's largest freshwater lake by surface area and the third largest freshwater lake by volume. The lake itself is shared by the Canadian province of Ontario to the north. And as for the United States, the U.S. state of Minnesota to the west... Wisconsin, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to the south. So there you have it. Three states, uh, being Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota, share Lake Superior, and Ontario, Canada, has uh, on the Canadian side. Superior has the highest elevation of all five Great Lakes. And if you seriously want to think about it, people, you could fit all four of the other Great Lakes into Superior. That's how big the lake is. So, given that Superior has the highest elevation of all five Great Lakes, um, the water drains into the St. Mary's River. That river connects the Twin Cities of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, via the Sault Ste. Marie International Bridge. Well, there you have it. That uh, Now, in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, uh, if any of you all are wondering where that is, that's the Upper Peninsula. As a matter of fact, um, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan uh, at one time was not even considered to be part of Michigan. Uh, but from a previous book I had read last year called The Toledo War, which uh, involved the states, or involved the state of Ohio, and at the time the territory of Michigan, um, those two, um, what do you call it, well, state and the territory went to war over who controlled the Toledo Strip, being what we now know as Northwest Ohio. But long story short, Michigan was given uh, the Upper Peninsula, which at that time was about 10,000 acres of vast wilderness. So I'll throw in a little bonus right here. How, where do, where do um, the mainland of Michigan where does that get connected with the Upper Peninsula? There's a bridge known as the Mackinac Bridge, or what is around Mackinac City. The Mackinac Bridge connects the mainland of Michigan to the Upper Peninsula. And what do you know? Sault Ste. Marie is in the Upper Peninsula, which obviously is not far from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. So there is, um, as for uh, Lake Superior's maximum length, it is 350 miles. Her maximum width is 160 miles. Her average depth is about 483 feet. Her maximum depth is 1,333 feet. 
And uh, I may have mentioned this in the podcast from Saturday, but I'll mention it again. Where the Edmund Fitzgerald rests in terms of at the bottom of Lake Superior is about 530 feet. So it would be easy to have assumed that 530 feet was the maximum depth, but in, um, but in reality, it's actually 1,333 feet is her maximum depth. That is for Superior. I also found it interesting that uh, Lake Superior has a shore length of 1,729 miles, including 997 miles for its islands. The lake is home to islands like Isle Royale, the Apostle Islands, Mishapikaton Island, to Slate Island. And given that Lake Superior borders uh, Canada and the United States, it's home to Canadian settlements of Thunder Bay and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, home to U.S. settlements of Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin, to Marquette and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Marquette is also on that upper peninsula. Well, let's dig back into history many, many years, I should say thousands of years before the first Europeans arrive. Which Indian tribal group inhabited the Canadian side of Lake Superior to the northern Midwestern U.S., including the American side of Lake Superior? Now, let me uh, go back here. We're not talking thousands of years just yet, but we are probably talking um, somewhere maybe at least 200 years before uh, the first Europeans arrive. So the answer to this question as to which Indian tribal group is inhabiting the Canadian side as well as the American side to Lake Superior, the answer is the Ojibwe, otherwise, otherwise known as the Chippewa. The Ojibwe fell under a tribal name known as Anishinaabe. Who are the Anishinaabe? What, what does that name mean? The good humans... Those who are on the right road or path given to them by the Creator, being none other than Gitche Manito, or Great Spirit. I find that interesting how this particular tribal name or tribal group that Anishinaabe were referred to as the good humans. I always believed that all Indian tribes were good humans, and perhaps I say that because the Indians were uh, stewards. They knew how to use the land properly. They never let anything go to waste, regardless of region they lived in. But the Indians weren't interested in, um, in making profits. They, While, yes, farming was an essential to their way of life, they didn't revolve around one or, they didn't revolve their farming around one or two crops. Not to get off track here, but when we think of um, the English coming to Jamestown in 1607, of course it took them a good period of time before they found that right uh, crop that saved the colony being tobacco. But to put it in a nutshell, the English uh, were addicted to, to tobacco to the point where it created uh, so much conflict with uh, and land tension with the Indians that it led to... Um, unprecedented hostilities to where uh, the Europeans, being the English, drove the Indians, or should I say the Powhatans, off their ancestral lands. So, as for being referred to as the good humans, being on the right road 
would mean to obviously, in one sense, mean that you are learn that you know how to use your land around you properly, and not uh, not only and not just by not abusing it, but by treating others around you with um, equal respect. Well, when did the uh, first people? Now here we go. Here's here's the question that I got sidetracked on a few minutes ago. Uh, that is with the first people coming to the Lake Superior region that was thousands of years before the first Europeans arrived. So when did those first people come to the Lake Superior region? It was about 10,000 years ago after the retreat of glaciers from the last ice age. The first people at this time were referred to as the Plano. They were a group of hunter gatherer uh, communities which occupied Great Plains areas of North America during the Paleo-Indian or what was known as Archaic period. Now, when we think of hunter get, hunting and gathering, what that just means is that, okay, you have a group of Indians who are in a specific um, part of territory. They uh, hunt, say, a, a deer. They hunt a bear. Um, they They kill this animal, and they know it's enough to feed the whole group and they gather other necessities like berries and um, nuts, basically any kind of provision that's going to help them for where they're temporarily at. So once they have all their necessities, they move on and go to the next uh, location. So basically, those Indian groups that were like the Plano that were hunter-gatherers, they didn't stay in one place. They were, all, they were on the go constantly. And no matter where they seem to go, they learn to adapt to different environmental settings. Here's a bonus question. Uh, how many years have the Anishinaabe people inhabited Lake Superior? Well over 500 years. So you think about that. The Anishinaabe have been living around that area long before many of us came into this world. Here's a very essential question uh, that pertains to the Anishinaabe people and what they um, referred to Lake Superior as. Um, what, what name did they have for, the, the lakes, for Lake Superior? Well, I'll tell you this right now. There were two names for the, for the lake itself. The first one was Ojibwe Gichigami, meaning the Ojibwe's Great Sea. The second one being... Anishinaabe Gichmaning, meaning the Anishinaabe's great sea. So in other words, Lake Superior to the Anishinaabe is really the chosen lake. It is the lake that they live and die by. It is the lake that is a source of their livelihood for all seasons. Here's another bonus question I'm going to throw out. What name did the first French explorers refer to Lake Superior as during a 17th century expedition by way of the Ottawa River and Lake Huron? They, this was their answer, or the answer to the question, I should say. Le Lac Superior, meaning the upper lake, or that, that is the lake above Lake Huron. And how true that is, because Lake Superior is above Lake Huron. The lake also had another name known as Lac Tracy, 
named for Alexandre de Provelle de Tresse by 17th century Jesuit missionaries. I hope I got my French pronunciation right there, but I'd say that's as good as it will get. Now, prior to the Seven Years, or should I say that French and Indian War ending, the British were the ones who modified the name that we know today to be Lake Superior. How so? Well, the British saw this lake as being superior in magnitude to any of the lakes on that vast continent. And what was the vast continent they're referring to? North America. So think about it. The British have seen lakes before, but seeing Lake Superior is the granddaddy of all lakes to them. And I could see why. Because it borders not only Canada, it borders the United States. It is a very, very large lake. Yes, Lake Ontario and Erie are unique, but Superior stands out from the rest of them. It makes sense to call it Superior. After the Europeans had arrived into Lake Superior, how did the Anishinaabe benefit from their presence? Well, it turns out the, that the Anishinaabe served as middlemen between French fur traders and other Indian tribes. After all, the beaver um, trade is a huge um, mark, or should I say profitable industry. So, hey, the Anishinaabe are the um, middle people that the Europeans and the other Indian tribes can go to. And it turns out that the Anishinaabe would occupy all of Lake Superior's shores by the mid-18th century. So this is just before the French and Indian War breaking out. So it is safe to say that the Anishinaabe people have a monopoly on all of Lake Superior's shores. They know what's going to be coming in and what's going to be coming out and what is not going to be allowed. Now it's time to get into some... Uh, geology history of Lake Superior. And, and what, some of you are probably wondering, why is uh, geology important? Well, I, I think for starters, geology is important because it, it tells a story of how um, all sorts of rock formations are formed. It also tells a story of how um, unique cliff dwellings evolved over millions of years of uh, evolution, kind of like the Grand Canyon, for example. But the rocks of Lake Superior's northern shore date back to Earth's early history, most notably during the Precambrian era, which, which was between 4.5 billion and 540 million years ago. Uh, that's ancient people. Uh, that's uh, ancient uh, times. But the region surrounding Lake Superior was proven to be rich in minerals that ranged from copper, iron, silver, gold, to nickel. Here's an example. Copper was very prevalent in the Keweenaw Peninsula, iron from the Gogabic Range, silver at Silver Islet, and uranium at Theano Point. And given that... Um, the ships that came through the Great Lakes years ago and still to this day being Lakers, what kind of uh, resources are they transporting? It's a very easy answer. Natural resources. 
Great Lake Superior has always been a vital link in the Great Lakes Waterway, or what's known as the GLW, Great Lakes Waterway. And if any of you are wondering what is the GLW, it's a system of natural channels and artificial canals that allow navigation throughout all five Great Lakes. And what are all five Great Lakes people? Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, Ontario. Uh, here's a little bonus question. There's only one of the five Great Lakes that does not border Canada. Does anybody want to know which one it is? The answer is Michigan. Michigan's the only one that stays right within the United States. Matter of fact, Lake Michigan's furthest uh, southern um, point in terms of its waterway access is to uh, Gary, Indiana. So Lake Michigan borders um, Indiana, Illinois, uh, and Wisconsin. Matter of fact, my uh, sister lives not far from Milwaukee, and they have uh, easy access to Lake Michigan. And I have been to Chicago before, and of course the city of Chicago is surrounded by Lake Michigan. And as for other um, cities in Wisconsin that um, surround uh, Lake Michigan, there's Green Bay, Wisconsin. To give you an example. And um, what are some examples of some canals that have benefited from the Great Lakes uh, waterways? not just canals, but say lock systems. There are many of them, but I'll, I'll give you two good examples. There is the Welland Canal, which um, is on the, on, uh, the side of uh, Canada. The Welland Canal dates all the way back to the uh, late 1820s, early 1830s. That canal connects Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, and the canal itself allows ships to safely ascend and descend Niagara's escarpment to, to passing Niagara Falls. Now, that is an, an incredible engineering feat onto itself. Uh, prior to the Welland Canal being built, engineers were desperately struggling to find a way for ships to safely go across this Niagara escarpment without the fear of the uh, ships themselves going over the Niagara, going over the falls and crashing at the, at the basin, being at the bottom. Well, I'm not an engineer, but from what I read uh, back at the start of this year, a book called uh, Pandora's Locks, um, the opening of the Great Lakes uh, St. Lawrence Seaway, engineers were able to do the unthinkable. They um, went above and beyond to um, find the right um, navigational tool system in terms of engineering um, structural matter to determine what was the safest way to move boats and once they found that the rest was history so let's let's put it this way to you people before the Welland Canal was built Lakes Huron, Superior, Michigan and Erie all connected with one another but there was no connection with Lake Ontario. As a matter of fact, Niagara Falls, in today's time, Niagara Falls gets water from all five Great Lakes. But at one time, it only got water from Lake Ontario. As a result of the Welland Canal being constructed, not only was Lake Erie connected to Ontario, but Michigan, Superior, and Huron all had their waters flow directly not into Lake Erie, not, not only to just Lake Erie, but Lake Ontario. 
and all that water flowing um, into what we would eventually lead to the St. Lawrence Seaway. So the bottom line is, when you see Niagara Falls, and my wife went there two years ago, for one, it's a breathtaking sight. It is very well worth the visit. But when you see all that water flowing at a very, very rapid pace, don't think of just Lake Ontario alone. Think of all five Great Lakes as a whole. Every uh, Great Lakes body of water is flowing into, into the falls, at being at Niagara Falls. And in some instances, it takes years, given Lake Superior. I had read in that book, uh, Pandora's Locks, that it takes almost close to 200 years before all of Lake Superior's water gets over Niagara Falls. That's how big the lake is, being Lake Superior. Or as the Anishinaabe people called it, Gitchagumi. Another uh, unique uh, body of, um, not just body of water, but a um, navigational slash canal system that has benefited the Great Lakes waterways is the Sioux Locks, which have been around since 1855. That is, the first locks were. So to think the Sioux Locks were first opened for um, commerce purposes or for commercial navigation prior to the United States Civil War breaking out. So the Sioux Locks are a set of parallel locks that are operated and maintained by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The locks themselves enable ships to travel between Lake Superior and the Lower Great Lakes. It is located on the St. Mary's River between Lake Superior and Lake Huron and between the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Ontario, Canada. Now, I can name some other stuff, but I felt it was good to give two good examples, not just on the Canadian side, but for both the United States and the Canadian side, because both the U.S. and Canada benefit not only from the Sioux Locks, but from the Welland Canal. True or false, was shipping itself slow to arrive into, the, into Lake Superior come the, early, come the very beginning of the 19th century? The answer is yes. The first steamboat didn't run on Lake Superior itself until 1847. Whereas the other four Great Lakes began seeing steamers emerge as early as 1816. I'm not sure why it took Lake Superior longer. I'd have to do research on that. But I just find it rather interesting that there is about a 30-year gap between Lake Superior's first... Um, steamboat in terms of um, a boat that wasn't just out there for luxury purposes, but a boat that was out there for commercial purposes, whereas the other four Great Lakes were already starting to have, um, what do you call it, they were already on the, um, on the offense in terms of going forward. But nonetheless, uh, Lake Superior um, got going in 1847 and it hasn't been stopping since. Now, given just how big Lake Superior herself is, what section of the lake has earned the infamous name as Graveyard of the Great Lakes? When I say Graveyard of the Great Lakes, am I referring to something that's good or bad? The answer is bad. The answer is the following. The southern shore between Grand Marais and Whitefish Point, Michigan, have seen more ships become what is known as the graveyard of the lake. 
In other words, more ships have met their doomed fate. And there have been more than one, more than just one shipwreck. But what I will tell you this is that I'll just tell you this now that that is where the Edmund Fitzgerald would meet its inevitable fate on November 10th, 1975 between Grand Marais and Whitefish Point. As a matter of fact, what do you know? It's been, what, this November marks 45 years since the Fitzgerald sank. But since that time, there have been no other uh, shipwrecks around Grand Marais and Whitefish Point. And, of course, that, that is a, a good thing to know. I think it's safe to say that perhaps better practices and technology have evolved, but somehow it is a very, very good thing to know that there have been no other uh, shipwrecks around Grand Marais and Whitefish Point since that uh, fateful night of November 10th, 1975, when the Edmund Fitzgerald went out of sight. According to legend, Lake Superior seldom gives up her dead. Why is this so? Why does that saying have such significant relevance? This could be attributed to the lake's low water temperature being around 36 degrees Fahrenheit, or 2 degrees Celsius, and this was on average by around 1970 times, but but this is another uh, important uh, truth to be told. Superior's water is so cold year-round that it, it inhibits bacterial growth. It's so cold, so cold to inhibit bacterial growth, and a human body can sink straight to the bottom of the ocean and never resurface. So if the, the water of Lake Superior, if it were the opposite and it was more, say, of a mild temper, temperature, human bodies could resurface. And as I mentioned from uh, Saturday's podcast, a diver uh, had gone down in 1994, just the year just before the 20th anniversary of the ship's sinking, and he discovered... A, bo- a, a, a man with his life jacket on. He was a member of the Edmund, he was one of the 29 men who lost their lives on the Edmund Fitzgerald, but his body had not decomposed. His body remained intact in that life, in that life jacket. And it, was, and it remained intact because of just how cold the water was. So yes, you could see you could see skeletons of of, uh, of people, but you could still see a person's body preserved without having decomposed, no matter how long a tragic incident like the sinking of the Fitzgerald had taken place. So that's an example right there of Lake Superior seldom seldomly giving up her dead. In other words, twenty nine men lost their lives, but. In some, but in some cases, like this particular example, some of the men, their bodies never decomposed. So Superior will never give up her secrets. And obviously for those who lost their lives around Grand Marais and Whitefish Point, yes, they, the ships themselves met their fate, 
but the people still have a story to be told who lie underwater and that they've never withered away. How many rivers are fed into Lake Superior? The answer is more than 200, which I was totally blown away by. Lake Superior has a surface area of 31,700 square miles. That is roughly the size of South Carolina, including the European country of Austria. There is enough water in Lake Superior to cover the entire land masses of North and South America to a depth of 30 centimeters. This lake is an amazing natural wonder. Yes, it's one thing to say, oh, I saw this lake or I went to this lake. But when you look at how big Lake Superior is on a map and knowing just how far west she goes into Duluth, Minnesota and Superior, Wisconsin, well, more so to Duluth, Minnesota and as far south as Wisconsin and uh, Michigan and its upper peninsula, or I should say the upper peninsula of Michigan, that's a pretty um, amazing stretch of... Um, shoreline mileage um, in terms of uh, lakeshore, um, what do you call it, um, what do you call it, thousands of um, acres of lakeshore front. I mean, this lake, this lake is truly the granddaddy of them all. So in our next podcast session, we're going to uh, talk about um, more about the Edmund Fitzgerald. As a matter of fact, we're going to continue to talk more about her but I felt that tonight's podcast was essential about Lake Superior and all the uh, unique um, facts about this lake and the people who uh, first inhabited the lake to, to the names that were given to Lake Superior and really how the British are the first Europeans that um, gave the name that we know today, Lake Superior, because she is the mightiest, the the grandest of all lakes, not just um, around the Great Lakes region, but on that vast continent, as they referred to, being North America. Well, folks, this was a great um, podcast discussion tonight. I look forward to the next one coming up here soon. Stay safe and take care.